Good morning. Before I begin, I'd just like to open in prayer, please. Lord Jesus, 2,000 years ago, wise men came to worship you. And today, Lord God, we come to worship you as well. We choose to say you are our king. You are our God. And we love you. Thank you so much for the worship we've had today. And I pray that you will reveal yourself to us once again as the only king who is worthy of worship, the only king who is worthy of praise, the only one we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. So, as Mike said, today we're speaking on the visit of the Magi, or the wise men, or the kings, called by so many different words, different names. And I'm going to open by reading Matthew chapter 2. I'll go from verse 1 through to 12. And I'll give a quick summary of a little bit of what happens next as well, just so you're aware. Give you a moment to find. Or to look up on your phones. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born? king of the Jews. We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may worship him. <laughs> Pull the other one. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, God didn't fall for that one, they returned to their country by another route. <laughs> One of the things that I've been learning over the last year is just how much in the Bible goes unsaid. Quite often, you see, the writers of Scripture knew that they had certain things in common with their audiences, so there were things they wouldn't need to spell out. 2,000 years later, in a very different culture and society, a lot of those things that are unsaid go completely over our heads, and we miss them. And as a result, we misread a lot of these verses. As I've been preparing this sermon, one question occurred to me that I had never thought of before. When did we start celebrating birthdays? It sounds like such a strange question, but actually it's really important because it provides the context for what is going on in this passage. You see, the idea of birthdays was actually quite new at the time of Christ. 
it wasn't really possible to celebrate birthdays until you had a sort of a common calendar. And that only came into existence when Rome started steamrolling everything and establishing such a strong rule that everywhere fell under its sway and followed the Roman calendar. Rome, by this time, was the global superpower. It was so powerful that other countries would basically adopt its calendar because, well, it's less hassle. We're trading with so many places that are under the Roman calendar. And once you've got a set calendar, you can start celebrating things like birthdays. The first person whose birthday was ever celebrated, it will not surprise you to hear, was someone rich and powerful. It was actually Julius Caesar, two years after his death. Why? Because the Romans believed kings and gods went together hand in hand. So Julius Caesar's birthday became a festival, a holy day, when people would present offerings of worship to Caesar, Nine, uh, in honor of Caesar even. 19 years before Jesus, 19 BC, Augustus became the first Caesar whose birthday was celebrated during his own lifetime. Again, it's because he was considered a god, the god king, Caesar of Rome. And so people would bring their offerings to him, and they would make sacrifices in his honor. It was as much a, a day of priesthood as anything else. And that context is really important. By the time of Jesus, though, other kings, local rulers, had started to follow the same pattern. They'd started to have their birthdays celebrated. And when their children were born, well, they were going to be the heir to the throne. So they were celebrated too. And the idea was the local area would celebrate, oh, and our future king has been born. Let's make offerings and sacrifices in the honor of Caesar, in the honor of the local king. And local dignitaries from other neighboring nations, they would travel to present gifts. They would do that in part because they wanted to be in the current king's good books. You know, they'd want him to think, yeah, they're mates. I can trust them. They honor me. They bring gifts for my family. Yeah, I'm happy with this. This is the context for the Magi. A fairly new pattern of traveling to visit to celebrate the birth of a new king. But there is one big difference that really stands out when you look at the dates here. You see, this passage says that the wise men started traveling when they saw the star. Herod asked them when the star appeared, and later he actually commands all the children under the age of two to be killed. The implication is that by this time, Jesus is possibly up to about two years old. The classic Christmas image of the shepherds and the wise men all stood at the manger together is a nonsense. In fact, Mary and Joseph stayed in Bethlehem, probably to avoid a local scandal of people in Nazareth saying, hold on a minute, that child's too old. She must have gotten pregnant before you were married. So they probably stayed in Nazareth for a little while to blur 
things over a little bit and avoid the scandal. The wise men arrived up to two years later. Think about what I said a moment ago. Local dignitaries, people from neighboring countries would travel to honor a king. These weren't very local. It took them up to two years to get there. That's actually quite staggering. The idea that they saw a star and they considered this king to be so worthy of worship and praise that they would travel for up to two years to come to the king of the Jews. They were saying, this king, that is how important we think this king really is. That is how significant we think his birth is. You probably wouldn't actually travel for two years if it was Caesar's son being born. And that is why Herod is utterly freaked out in this passage. We often look at this verse and we think, oh, he must have been just an insecure ruler. And he probably was quite an insecure ruler. He had good reason to be. Jerusalem and Israel, they didn't like him. But he's actually here thinking, wait, a king has been born who is so significant that people will travel for two years to worship him. A king has been born who, by traveling this far, they're implying he's greater than Caesar. Suddenly, Herod is there thinking the throne of Rome is shaking and it's in my area. If the throne of Rome is shaking in his area, his head is on the chopping block. So that is why he is very disturbed. And that's why Jerusalem is disturbed. Because suddenly, this is a threat to the world's system of power. This is a threat on an unprecedented scale. So the, the fear would have been, hold on, if this gets to Rome, will we get legions coming in? What's going to happen because of this? Panic. The example of the wise men fascinates me because when you look at this context, you realize just how worthy they thought Jesus really was. And it challenged me a little bit as I thought about it. How worthy do we think Jesus is? How much inconvenience will we suffer to worship him? How much will we allow him to cost us? My favorite parable, I've quoted it so many times, and Mark's probably thinking, yeah, I know exactly where he's going here. My favorite parable is the parable of the pearl of greatest price. The one in which Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a precious pearl. A merchant finds that pearl, and that merchant recognizes it is so valuable, so worthwhile that he will sell everything he has this was a man who had many fine pearls. He had countless treasures. And none of them compared to the pearl of greatest price. So he sold everything he had. And he went away, Jesus says, rejoicing. Because he possessed this pearl. How worthy do we think Jesus is? 
We sing the songs. We say you are worthy. Worthy of what? Worthy of what degree of inconvenience? Worthy of what cost? For these wise men, worthy meant worthy of giving up our lives for up to two years. Worthy of traveling in inhospitable conditions, in dangerous conditions, because they were just following a star. They didn't know where it was going to take them. It could have taken them through any territories, through places where there were bandits, through places where there was conflict and war. It could have taken them anywhere. And they came. Because they realized that's how much this king was worth. How much do we recognize the worth of Jesus? How valuable do we think he is as a king, king of our lives? How much would we offer as a sacrifice of praise? The wise men were wise, but they were still flawed. Because when they got to Jerusalem, they made a mistake. You see, they understood kingship in earthly terms. So the first thing they did was head to the capital city. The first place they looked for the king was the palace. They didn't understand what the kingdom of God is like. They didn't really get it. They knew so much. They were so wise, but not all there. They didn't have the whole picture. They got to the palace, and the first thing they found was a surprise. Nobody had a clue what they were talking about. Imagine it. Remember the context that I've just spelled out. The idea that the birth of a king was celebrated across the land by his, subject, by his future subjects. And here they get to the place of the future subjects, and they haven't a clue. It reminded me a little of John chapter 1, verse 11, where we read that he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. That's what's going on here. It's quite remarkable that the wise men from a distant land, a land up to two years travel away, recognize the birth of this king when his own people don't. I can just imagine them looking at each other going, what on earth is happening here? They must have been bewildered. But Jesus' birth was celebrated, as we heard last week. Not by Herod, not by the Pharisees, the high priests, the rulers and the authorities. The Magi, they came, but they didn't get an invitation. Who got an invitation? Shepherds. The outcasts. The kingdom of God, you see. The kingdom of God isn't like an earthly kingdom. Power in the kingdom of God, it doesn't look like earthly power. Never has done, never will do. It's why you can't build the kingdom of God using earthly tools. A point that Adi alluded to that I found really powerful the other week. You can't do it because the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world, they're so different. The kingdom of God is found in the last places you'd expect. The king of kings, the lord of lords, he isn't born in a palace, he's born in a barn. Staggering when you put it as bluntly as that, isn't it? This is where God chooses the king of kings to be born. And his birth wasn't celebrated by royal dignitaries. 
but by the outcasts. The people the world would overlook. Jerusalem, the capital of this land, didn't even know its king had come. That's how quietly, sometimes how secretly, how easy to overlook the kingdom of God really is. We tend to forget this so easily. We get caught up in the ways of the world because we are bombarded with messages of this is what kingdom and power and authority look like. They don't. We see that with the wise men because they thought they were going to the right place. They went to the place of authority and power and they walked away utterly confused <laughs> because that was the place that didn't know God at all. For us today, that's the second challenge, really, from the wise men. How wise are we? Are we wise in the ways of the world? So we buy into the idea of this is what power looks like. And so unwittingly we close our eyes to the things that God is actually doing. I tell you, when God is doing things, they are not the things that are going to hit the headlines. Because they are subtle. They are so quiet as quiet as a baby's birth in a backwater town. They are the things the world would overlook because the world doesn't even recognize the power of them. The world thinks, oh, for power, look to Rome, for Caesar. Look to Jerusalem, for Herod. And yet nowadays, Caesar Augustus and Herod, they're just footnotes in Jesus' story. <laughs> Don't you love it? The power of God is greater than all the power of this world. The power of this world is temporary and transitory, and it just fades away. The people who have power in this world, whether it's from their wealth or positions that they've grasped or whatever, it will go. It will diminish, and their names will be forgotten, and they will be insignificant. But there is a king whose reign will ever endure. There is a kingdom that will last when the heavens and the earth have passed away. When all the great names of this world have been forgotten. When nobody even remembers what America was, let alone who a president of America is. When nobody cares about any of that stuff, the kingdom of God will stand. There is a kingdom, and we are part of that kingdom. This secret subtle kingdom that is at work in ways the world does not even notice. That's the kingdom we're part of. This is our king. And we are his subjects. The wise men, they were, they were wise to a point. I wonder, I wonder what they thought when they arrived at Bethlehem. And they found the place where the baby was. Notice it doesn't say that it was the barn because quite some time had passed. It just says the place where the child was. I wonder what they thought when they saw Mary, wife of a carpenter. This isn't very auspicious. This isn't what we expected. I wonder, did they become a little bit wiser through that experience? Did they walk away thinking, maybe 
Maybe kings and kingdoms aren't what we thought they were. Now let's look at the final thing I want to draw out, the gifts. Now when we look at the gifts, we tend to look at them and think, oh, this is a bit weird. Why have they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Frankincense and myrrh being to do with priests. But actually remember the context again. There was a blurred line in the ancient world's world between kings and gods. With Caesar, his birthday was a holy day. You would make sacrifices and offerings of worship because the king was seen as the intermediary or even more so as the, not quite the same sense as we mean it, but almost the incarnation of a deity. And the same, that is true with Jesus, but even more so. Because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the king of kings. He is also the great high priest. The one who made a way for us so that we could come to the Father. The perfect high priest. The only one we'll ever need. That is our king. Our, our God king. That's the phrase that has kept going through my mind. He is the God king. The king who is God. More than any other royalty in the ancient world. They imagine themselves to be gods. He is. Before creation existed, he did. He came to earth. He returned to his throne. He rules. He reigns over all things. He has been given a name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess that he is Lord. Again, context. That phrase, that phrase that he is Lord would have been an absolute shockwave in the ancient world. Because the phrase there is Caesar is Lord. Caesar, the king of Rome, is God. That was what they thought. And here we have every knee shall bow. Every knee. Caesar's too. Caesar shall bow. There's a phrase in, that Daniel uses to describe Jesus that has kept running through my mind here uh, to describe God. He says that he is the God of gods. All those who would call themselves gods. All those who would exalt themselves. All those who believe they have power in this world. They will bow. That's our king. Today then, as we look at the example of the wise men, the challenge really is, will we follow their example? Will we recognize the worth of God? Will we recognize that he is the pearl of greatest price? That he is worth any inconvenience? That whatever demands he places on our lives, he's worth it. That whatever pearls we have, whatever precious things we have, however good they may be, 
there is nothing compared to him. Will we be willing to be inconvenienced in our worship? To let the patterns and rhythms of our lives be disrupted because we know he is worthy. Worthy. He is worth that cost. Will we look for him in the right places? Will we look for him in the places where the world looks for power? Or will we instead have eyes open to the kingdom of God, the kingdom that is at work in this world in the most subtle ways, the kingdom of God that is so easily overlooked? Will we make the mistake of the wise men by looking to the wrong places? Or will we instead recognize that you cannot build the kingdom of God with worldly tools? Because they're different things. Will we have eyes open to the work our king is doing in this world? Will we be sensitive to the quiet, subtle, unexpected, unpredictable, but ultimately all-powerful work of God? And finally... Will we trust in this God King alone? I love the song, Come Now is the Time to Worship. There's a one day every time. <laughs> the words have just gone out of my head as I started speaking. One day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly. That's us. And as we worship, as we bow, we're foretelling a day when one day that will be true, when every knee will bow. The wise men, to me, they, they are a hint of what is to come. They are there at the birth, uh, shortly after the birth of Jesus, worshiping. One day, every tongue will confess his lordship. One day, Every knee will bow. Today, as we worship, as Emma leads us in a time of worship again, remember that we are a foretaste of the world to come. That the worship we give is a hint of the day that one day it will be. May God bless this word to our hearts.